Hello, my name is Joshua. Welcome to the League of Josh podcast. Today I have on someone that I've known for a while but haven't had the opportunity to sit down with, and that's Eric Lepke. Eric and I played against each other from the end of our club careers. So he was a U18 while I was U18, but he was playing up a year. So he won the national championship at U18, won the MVP award. From there, he went to Trinity Western, where he was named U Sport Rookie of the Year, all rookie team three-time first-team All-Canadian U-Sport Player of the Year in his final year. Um, I believe he went five for seven with championship banners, so he won either the Canada West or U-Sport almost. He won one of those in every single year that he played. Um, he is now playing in Italy, in Ravenna, I believe, and... He's done a few stints with the national team. In his second year, he went and played overseas with the national team. And so it was, it was really fun to have Eric on. He's a very intelligent person and someone that I've looked up to as a, as a player and a competitor. He's unbelievably humble and a very intelligent human being. So I'm beyond grateful that I was able to sit down with Eric and have this conversation. And I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Thanks. Yeah, man, I'm super excited to have you on. Um, yeah, I've, I've, been wanting to have you on for a while now it's uh i was just waiting for the right opportunity so this seems like a oh, good spot perfect. Yeah, this yeah. Is perfect. um i really want to talk to you today about creativity i mean you and i think that trinity has a big part to play in that but uh, the creativity that you guys had as a team and you as yourself you did some pretty cool stuff and i i want to know specifically a little bit about how the technological landscape so access to video and access to all these different visual inputs how that has impacted your creativity. Yeah, all right, you wanna just get rolling with it? Yeah, why not? All right, man. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really cool thing about Trinity is um, Ben's always looking for just different, like new kind of things to try. Um, he's never like stuck in one way, like even, even I know like blockers, like, like middles like JVD and Ben Burkle, um, like Ben was teaching him to block a different way than he was maybe teaching like Jackson and Pierce and Aaron and those guys. Mm -hmm. um, like he's always kind of learning and looking just for what's better and trying things out um, in different movements. So I think it just makes like, it makes practices super fun because he's like, oh, I saw this or like this coach was talking about this or like Long Beach is doing this or this guy in Germany's doing this. So then we always just like tried it in practice. And like, um, I remember my first year, like, you know, the Ngopith like jump side set thing. Yeah. Um, like we just started doing it like in practice. Mm -hmm. And at first it, like, we were really bad at it. Like it was hard. We're like, okay. Like, I don't know if it's going to work. And then it just kind of like by wrapping it out, then the opportunities kind of present themselves in games. And then it just kind of opens the floor um, for us to try that. Like, um, that's what I love about Ben is he gives us like the freedom in those moments to like just go for it. Yeah. Um, there's a sick play of Jesse Elser, like set and Pierce from like a like in his first year, and he just like went for it and it worked out and it was unreal. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I remember watching a video on you guys a bunch and. In your first year, I don't think anyone actually did the set. 
Like Adam yeah. would set you guys and then you guys would go up and swing almost every single time. Yeah. And then we had a meeting at the end of the year and Pat, Pat was like, they're going to do it. Like they're going to start setting each other off of that. And then after you guys started setting each other, I saw your guys' middle start approaching. And I was like, oh man, they're going to start setting middle off of this. Yeah. Like this, they, there's really no, there's no ceiling to, to where this is going. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of like keeps evolving into different stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool, I think. And then even like the, like we played with a bunch of other stuff, like overpass things, like with Derek, like like jumping and like trying to side set Derek um, on overpasses. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just be kind of like came our thing and then other teams started to do it, like UBC started doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other teams started trying it, so. I think it's cool for like growing the game. Just, yeah. You got to try it. Yeah. And it looks like with the, with all the visuals that are available, I can go onto YouTube. Whereas 20 years ago, uh, Pat was telling us that you had to like send a video cassette and it would take the full week to get there. And then you right. could maybe do video on Thursday. And sometimes you couldn't even do video for a team because their cassette get lost in the mail or the coach doesn't mail it on time. And, and then you're totally hooped and that's the only video that you have access to at all. But now we have, like I said, YouTube and all of these immediate visuals where I can go and watch VNL or like if Ben Joe's always posting about you guys and all of the overseas guys, it looks like he watches almost all of your guys' games on the weekends. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember Ben saying like when he was in college, he had no concept of what international volleyball even looked like because you can never watch it and we can watch it like all the time whenever we want. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, yeah, with volumetrics too. I don't know. Have you used volumetrics before? Yeah. Yeah. That angle's sweet. Yeah. That angle's sweet. And it's just so nice. You can just say, okay, this guy plays here, go watch all his actions. Mm-hmm. And it takes like 10 minutes versus even having to watch like the full game. And then seeing that one play it does, you can just kind of go find snippets of everything. So yeah, it's a cool world out there. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about being a volleyball player versus being a spectator is that I never want to watch the side angle. Like I only want the angle from the back, but everything everything in international volleyball and any league is always from the sides. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a little bit weird, yeah. Um, what do you think, what's the the culture that creates creativity and what do you think is a, an environment that you personally thrive in in being creative yourself and developing that creativity? I think it's just freedom, like without the freedom, without freedom to, to just like go for it. And yeah, like just that TW, like it, it was okay to mess up. Like it was okay to, to mess up in practice. And we knew that we had the freedom to try these things. Um, and that's the tough thing about like even being overseas now is like, you feel a little more restricted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless you're like, you almost have to gain that confidence first to be free versus um, if you know you're free, then you can try things when you're not confident with it yet. And I think that's really how you learn. And then once you get maybe confident in other things, like obviously in Gopeth, like he just tries whatever he wants because he's like kind of built up his own stature of who he is. And that's just who he is mm-hmm. uh, for young guys and, especially college guys are also like learning technically so much that I think you need to have that freedom to just promote that kind of culture. Mm. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I've, I've talked to some guys that have played overseas and it goes from college where you have this, this culture is already built up and there's this freedom and you know the coach and you develop a relationship with everyone on the team. And then you mm-hmm. go overseas and you're thrown into this team with a new coach, new guys, everyone has differing philosophies. And like I, I, I had one friend, Randy, and his coach last year in Sweden was saying, you can't get blocked like ever that's that's part of that's part of the rules for our team like we don't miss serves and we don't get blocked like you always hit around the block and he's an off the block hitter so he gets stewed once every eight times but he's always off the block so he found that really difficult and kind of adjusting to different coaches and different philosophies yeah absolutely that's so tough yeah like this year this year our coach was like in the beginning he wanted us to do like the jump side set Mm -hmm. and stuff because maybe you'd seen video of us doing it before but we messed up a couple of times and then he just called it. Like he was like, no, no more. So mm-hmm. it's kind of too bad. Like when coaches do that, like they don't maybe let players expand to their full potential. Um, if they're limiting, limiting their kind of skill set almost, you know, or their mm-hmm. growth. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, um, I'm doing a lecture later this or earlier this month in a few weeks on um, personality development. And a big part of that is, Uh, neuroplasticity and how we need to fail to actually get better at things and and in terms of personality like you kind of you know that you're learning when you're failing yeah like that's just a part of the whole process pardon like positive stress almost yeah yeah like you need that you need that stress you need epinephrine and norepinephrine and then and then you trigger this acetylcholine neurotransmitter that kind of targets the space and then during your your deep sleep rest yeah. That's when your brain is actually changing. It's not in the moment. So like a big thing for me for coaching any team that I've coached, we, I always get them to spin serve. And oh, nice. I was coaching a, a woman's team in the second division in Denmark. And like some of them absolutely hated it because they would just mess up. Like they would, they would serve balls under the net. And the whole time I just re reinstated the idea that I, I don't care if we're making mistakes as long as we're getting yeah. better day to day. Oh man, that's really cool. I love that concept. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to get back into coaching and keep going with that. Yeah. Um, I, there was a interview with Ben Joe when you guys won in Laval, but it was your semifinal first Laval and you guys were down two one and nobody was hitting their serves hard. And he came into the huddle and, and you came into the huddle and you said, Hey, we've, we've got to hit our serves hard. Like, that's a part of our team. That's part of our culture. We have to go for it. We're, if we lose, we're, we're losing going for it. And he said that that was a big step in your progression as, as a leader. And I wanted to kind of know when you flipped that switch and how you flipped that switch, how you went from like Eric Lepke, rookie of the year, and all these other things, kind of a quieter guy on the court to being like Eric Lepke leader. Yeah, oh man. A little throwback here, but yeah, I, I, I remember that. That was, um, we were just sitting in a timeout and we were like, we were hitting passive serves and we were missing our serves and mm-hmm. we just weren't putting them into trouble. And then we were kind of just shooting ourselves in the foot. So, um, I remember talking to the guys, like, like just keep hitting our serves. Like a big thing for us all year was we focused on like green chip mentality, green chip serving is what mm-hmm. we called it. And what's that? And, um, it's kind of like, so if, it's a back to like a gambling analogy. Like mm-hmm. if you're, if you're playing at the roulette table and you're like, just um, 
you're tossing around random bets and numbers all the time, then your outcome is going to be random. Um, but if you're putting like the same chip forward every time, like, you know, what your outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. So like, it's a probable outcome. So if you, if you have like the same routine, like the same bounces, the same toss, the same everything, and you hit your serve, even though you've missed like, let's say five in a row, you can go back and make that, that individual serve, keep it the same. Mm-hmm. So it was like all year, it was like green chip, green chip, like go back, hit your serve. We don't care like where you were before um, or anything like that. And it actually goes back to, I don't know if you've heard of Andrea Becker. She was like a psychologist on the 2016 USA men's team who was mm-hmm. big on this. Um, Spraw just hired her because of like her brain. Like she knew nothing about volleyball. Right. And she came in and just stuttered or just studied all the serves and everything. And like would talk to the guys about the serves and most guys would be like, Oh, it was a bad toss. Or like, I was, I was trying to take some off of that because I missed a bunch. And, and that would actually just cause them to miss more serves. Right. It was like trying to change something, changing the probability. Like you change something, you're changing the whole probability of it. Mm-hmm. So the idea is of just like keeping it the same consistently, no matter what you are, like, don't, don't think of the service as like 20 serves. Think of each serve as its own individual thing mm-hmm. and then do your routine for that. So I think I was just really reminding the guys of that and being like, like hit your serve guys. Like we got to We got to keep our aggression up, hit your serve. Um, and it ended up working out really well for us. Um, yeah, that was a crazy game. That was a really crazy game. The fans were nuts too. So it was really fun. Yeah. yeah. I've heard, I've heard funny things about the Laval fans. Yeah. There was a, uh, one of our alumni was, his name was Chobel and he was from France. He played for the, junior team and he was rookie of the year and all this stuff. And I guess when they went to Laval for nationals, they, mm-hmm. it was in their old gym and they had like thousands of stands. They are thousands of fans. They brought in all of these extra, extra stands and oh. Showbell went up to the, he went up like right in pregame, everyone's warming up and Showbell's just standing at the edge of one of the stands screaming, you are not the real French. I am the real French. Like just screaming at these people that they weren't real French. He was the real French. And, and like guys had to go over and drag him away because he was just standing there. Wouldn't warm up. He was just yelling at these people because they were like, they were playing Laval that game. And yeah, they, had to, they had to drag him out. There's a sick photo of, uh, I think Jacob Kern serving with like, basically like blow horns behind him and like fans yeah. going crazy behind him. Such a sick photo. Yeah. Also, also that game we had like we had security like pull a guy away from our huddle because he came into like while well, Ben Joe was talking to the timeout. Mm-hmm. He was just like screaming in our huddle. Um, nice thing is you don't understand what they're saying, but <laughs> just good energy, man. Wild man, French Canadians. Oh yeah. Um, I wanted to. I've seen you post a few times about. Uh, literature that you're into like c.s lewis is one that i've seen you go to a few times and i want to know how that has helped you develop in like a more personal way and i guess alongside with volleyball but how you're mm-hmm. reading and studying is is kind of aided in that yeah well i take um i take my faith pretty seriously mm-hmm. um so i've been i've been really like diving into it this year um the nice thing about pro is you just have a lot of time to kind of like do your own thing. So 
I've got a pretty solid morning routine now where I just really try to focus on like my spiritual self in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just find the more I focus on that, like the better everything else is going. So I wake up and I got my routine down. I take a cold shower. I meditate with headspace. And then I read my Bible for like 45 minutes. Some Old Testament, New Testament, and some. And it's just like the most like refreshing kind of foundation for my day. Um, and then like some really cool authors like C.S. Lewis, um, Timothy Keller. And then I'm reading some George Mumford right now too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are just some like authors that I've been been kind of following right now to just to learn more and just kind of focus on my like spiritual development versus having so much focus on my physical development. Um, and I think the two are hand in hand and a lot of athletes maybe miss that spiritual development and mindfulness stuff. I know it's been pushing sport a lot recently, but it's pretty easy to neglect it. Um, but yeah, I, the screw tape letters, that book specifically has been like just a really cool read for me. It's basically like 30, 31 chapters of, it's a apocalyptic genre. That's the mm-hmm. word. So it's like a, a senior devil is writing to a junior devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and each, like the devil has like, every person has a devil assigned to them. And it's kind of like the underlying, like the humans don't know it because they don't want them to know. But it's just really interesting, like how everything's talked about, about things throughout your day maybe certain things in your life that are like, oh man, like I got to be careful for that with my relationships um, or I got to like watch my thoughts with that or just certain things um, that have been really cool. And then I think it just promotes self-growth and um, yeah, I just, I really like it. I find it fascinating. So it's a really cool read. Like every chapter is like no more than two pages long. Mm-hmm. but it takes me like 30 minutes just to get through it all because I'm like, Oh, that doesn't even make sense. Like, okay, I got to reread that. I'm, I got to look up this word. I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, just like underlining and circling stuff. So yeah, I've been really getting into that a lot this year, more than I was in college for sure, just with the time. Um, and I've really been enjoying it too. So it's been great. Yeah. C.S. Lewis is a really cool, he was, he was a very spiritual guy. Like he was a very faith-based person and yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. comes out in a lot of his literature. He has lots of cool archetypal ideas and lots of his stuff comes from the Bible and religion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, man. The Inklings are just so cool. I love all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the guys writing Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, and it's just those doing Narnia. So yeah. have you read any of his books? Yeah, I've read The Magician's Nephew and Narnia when I was younger. Oh, nice. But I think I've got to get into a few other ones, like the one you were talking about. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, the screw tape one's really cool, man. It's it's a hard dive. It's, it's like, that to me is not relaxing. It's like, okay, I'm ready to focus and like try to like just really think here. So, yeah. It's- with uh, with faith in mind, I wanted to ask about um, the leap of faith with, with Sam and you guys before you went to Italy. You know, can you just tell me about that? Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, it was such a crazy year, actually. Like, even just our whole relationship, 
um, was pretty crazy. Um, do you want me to like quickly just bring you through it all? Yeah, I, I really want to, like, I, I'm super interested in the, the marriage in particular, but I want to know like okay. where you guys met, kind of what the process was doing long distance and all of those things. Cause I'm, I'm assuming you guys did long distance while she was still mm -hmm. playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually met her the first time in Colorado, uh, August, 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, but I honestly thought I'd never see her again. Like I just chatted to her a little bit and that was that. And then we started chatting again in October and just kind of really hit it off. Um, classic, like just Instagram, hit it off over Instagram and then like phoning like every day basically and then i took the leap to go to france over christmas to like hang out with her because she was going to be coming back to minneapolis where she's from i'm from winnipeg so it's like six seven hours apart um and we were like okay well we'd see each other like one day if we'd overlap like when she was in minneapolis mm -hmm. i could drive down and i'd see her one day versus if i go there we'd get a hangout for like nine days right and she had some extra money in her contract for like family or friends to fly out. So it actually worked out really nice. Sweet. Um, so yeah, that was like trip of a lifetime. That was a huge step for us. Um, and we just were like, yeah, we want this. So we started dating. Um, she, she got to come out to BC in February. Um, and yeah, got to see that, which is sweet. Meet some of my teammates. My parents were out that week were out that weekend, so it was great. Um, and then the whole COVID thing kind of like blew up in March. And I went back to well, we were in Winnipeg when it happened. She was back in France. She was trying to figure out how to fly back. And during that time, I'd gone back to BC, just kind of packing up my things. And like trying to make the decision of like, oh, should I go home or like, should I stay out here and just like, like hang out with the guys and have a good time? Or should I like pack up my things and try to go see Sam? So I think she flew into Minneapolis on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, man, like, I don't know if the borders are going to close. Like, I just need to like go home, drop all my stuff off. And then maybe I'll head out to her place on the weekend. Um, so I actually stopped in Pierce's. I left Thursday. I packed up all my stuff Thursday, stopped at Pierce's place in Banff for night. And by the time I was in Medicine Hat on Friday, I was, um, my dad texted me and my mom texted me. I was filling up for gas. And Sam had texted me too that the borders were closing Friday night at midnight, like Eastern time. Um, and I was like, man, this sucks. Like, do I go home and like wait out till they open again? Or do I just like go for it and like drive, like just like cross somewhere in Sask or something. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, okay, I'm going for it. I just like, it added like four hours to my trip. So it was like a, like a 14 hour day turned into like an 18 hour day. Mm -hmm. um, but I left pretty early. So I was okay. But I, I crossed the border at like 6 PM. Um, so, and I was like, yeah, I don't know how long I'm going to be down here. Maybe a couple of weeks, like I'm guessing. Um, and she was the, the crossing guard was sweet. She's like, okay, yeah, cool. So she let me down and I ended up staying in Minneapolis for three months. 
with them and her family. Mm -hmm. Just because like, we'd like, wait, like, okay, they're not open this month. Like, well, I don't have to be anywhere actually. This is weird. So yeah, I might as well stay. Like, I don't want to go home and then like, it'll be great to see my family for like a week, but then I'll be like, why am I here? You know? So yeah. it just made sense for me to stay. And it was actually a great period of time for me to like, really like get to know her family because I'd been there for like, I was there for a hundred days straight. I think maybe it was like 96. Mm -hmm. um, but we were spending every day together, like 24 hours. We're hanging out, like, doing quarantine, hanging out with her sisters, her family. So it was awesome. Like it was, it was a great time. I ended up having to go back to Canada for uh, Kern's wedding actually. And then I did a little bit of training with the national team. But before I left, I'd asked her parents already for their blessing um, because I wanted, to, I wanted to propose that summer and get married the next summer. Um, so they were cool with it. I'd already ordered the ring um, and I picked it up when I went back to Steinbeck. And the plan was hopefully, hopefully she could come up to Canada before I left for Italy so I could propose. Um, and she actually drove up. We hadn't seen each other for a month. We were a month apart. She drove up and we met at the border, but they didn't let her cross. So, and they didn't let us talk to each other. And it was like terrible. Like, like she was like, I hadn't seen her. I was like, like I could see her. She could wave in her car, mm -hmm. but like we weren't allowed to like communicate or like even like talk or like, and it was like awful. I was so frustrated because I was like, okay, we're not criminals. Like she'll quarantine. Like we'll do, like, we'll do all that stuff. Like, it's just so frustrating. Like we just felt so choked and trapped. Um, and we had talked about like, oh, we should just like, just get married and like, like this stuff. But we, we didn't think we actually would, but I ended up planning. I, oh, sorry, this is a big detail. The, the crossing guard there told me, he's like, I've heard, he's like, hey, listen, man, he was an old guy, he was super nice. He's like, hey, I've heard there's like people been flying down to the States and they're letting people fly down um they can't fly up here but like canadians can still fly down to the states it's kind of like a unwritten rule mm -hmm. i was like oh really so i looked into it and like for sure enough there's a bunch of articles about people flying down to see family and fiancés and all that stuff so i booked my ticket flew up, flew down the next day during that 24 hours i planned out the engagement with her mom and a couple of her friends um and we got married Oh no, we didn't get married. We got engaged on the 30th of July. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, also going down there through customs, I've never been so grilled. Like, yeah. like I was like grilled so hard. They're going through everything, like my notebook, my wallet. They were, I had to show them my contract, um, like everything. They were flipping through everything I had. And the guy, gave apparently because i didn't have a return flight booked yet mm -hmm. he like could have not let me across but he gave me nine days in the country while this is also going on i'm like waiting to get my visa and as soon as i get my visa i have to go to italy so i was really worried like 
if I was like going to have to leave while I was down there or something. But he gave me nine days, said if I'm not back in Canada in nine days, major issues. Because um, I told him, I'm like, I'm going down to get married. Like, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So he let me cross. Um, and then, yeah, we got engaged. And then we got married two days later. Like, we signed the papers two days later at, um, at her grandparents' cabin. We just did, like, a little ceremony with me and her mom and her grandparents. Her mom's, uh, what's it called? She can marry people. Um, so we just did like this little ceremony. We were like, this is stupid. Like we know we're going to get married anyway. And we just don't want to be like really forced, like to not be able to see each other. And I'm like, so, so thankful that we did because like, if we didn't, I would have left and I wouldn't have seen her still since July. Right. Um, so it would have been, would yeah, it would have really sucked. Um, but she ended up, we drove up together, um, crossed the border. They like were pretty skeptical about us, but mm-hmm. after like an hour of talking and all showing them everything we could, they let us cross. And then we went to Italy together a couple weeks later, once I got my visa and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. So, so she was able to come to Italy with you because you guys were married. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she got like, she was able to, she even got to fly home for Thanksgiving and come back because she got a residency card here. Oh, and sweet. Everything. Yeah. So she was like, she, she could even stay longer than 90 days because mm-hmm. we we're married and stuff. So it was just looking back at it. It was like, okay, that was probably the smartest decision we've made. Um, right. And yeah, it, looking back, it's like, man, I don't know. Yeah. It would have just sucked. Like it would have been a totally different year mm-hmm. um, with her here. So yeah it was crazy but it was worth it and we kind of kept it on the dl a little bit because we didn't want to like i don't know we didn't want to take away the season of engagement and just it was just a lot that happened and um but then eventually we were like we're married like who cares we'll just tell people um so yeah very very cool and now she's in she's in the first professional league in america now yeah she is yeah, what was the in. what was the process for that like being around for that and kind of seeing how that evolved that's a pretty huge step for volleyball in general i think especially in north america because in europe it's it's huge tons of people love volleyball it's way mm-hmm. way bigger than it is here and so now that it's becoming more of a thing in north america i think that we're going to see it grow over time yeah i know that there was like the first she heard of it was like last March. Um, I think there was like Karch Karai and like Jordan Larson were meeting with people trying to put something together the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got some real decent donors um, and sponsors for it to put the league together. Um, and she, we thought it'd be best because then she could like um, just be with me for most of the season, but still get to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of have that pro experience. So um, it ended up working out really well. Um, but I think it's going to be great for the sport. Like girls volleyball is like the number one played sport in America for like high school and junior high kids, but there's like mm-hmm. no pro league. So I think there's a big 
big audience to tap into for that. And yeah, I really hope like they're doing a great job. Like I've been watching all the draft nights and all the matches and they're doing a great job promoting it. And I'm, yeah, I hope it can maybe move into something bigger maybe something that is kind of like an all year thing or mm-hmm. like a little bit longer than two months and maybe one day it can have a guy's league. There's enough attraction, but yeah, I think it's going to be great for the sport. And um, just for like young girls to see that there's like a pro league in America, I think is pretty cool mm-hmm. um, because I feel like a lot of girls after college just kind of stop and don't take the leap to go overseas. It's a pretty big leap, but if they could play in a uh, home country, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, even, even people not having to go to school to continue playing volleyball seems like a really big pull as well. I know that was something that I think, I think Sharon from the Canadian side of things was one of the only people I think he's the only person on the national team that didn't go to a university. He's the only person that doesn't have that box filled. So his yeah. ability to go overseas and now that that's becoming more of a thing here where there's, there's potential at least for the professional league to develop and people to not have to go to school before to continue playing volleyball. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be amazing. Um, Cause it's kind of ironic how it works. Like you think of like NBA guys or, NFL guys or players, they do like a one and done anyway. Yeah. Because they have to, but it'd be cool if like they could keep growing and yeah, I think it'd be fantastic. What was the, what was the name of the league that she's playing in just so that people can check it out? Athletes Unlimited. Athletes Unlimited. Yeah. They got, they're actually doing, they're doing a professional girls softball league, which I know is huge. Cool volleyball and lacrosse so they've kind of i think this is their second league they're doing and they're doing a lacrosse one maybe over the summer oh sweet i've got to check that out i'm a big lacrosse fan oh yeah yeah and i've never like watched it but apparently it's our national sport right yeah yeah that's cool hockey hockey and lacrosse yeah lacrosse is a it, it has a shot it has a shot clock so it's it's like basketball and i think it's just way faster pace right yeah, and it's funny because the the ball is the same size as a puck, the net is half the size of a hockey net, and the goalie is twice the size of a goalie in hockey. But the scoring is way higher. Like, you'll almost always get into double digits unless your goalie's super sick. Really? Wow. Yeah. But people are just unbelievably accurate. And, yeah, you have a lot of control. It's a super fun sport. I played it a lot growing up. Yeah, I got to check that out more. Yeah, it's it's super sweet. Um, I want to talk about how I think as a culture, we tend to idealize people that are kind of at the the top of their, their, their hierarchies and the sport they play or the field that they're in. We, we really tend to think that people have the perfect lives. And I want to, I want to ask you if there's, um, with such a prestigious resume resume, have you ever had a time where you felt lost or you've been told you can't do something or anything along those lines where you like you're you're kind of at a lower level and you have to you have to find your path again yeah um that's a great question deep question yeah i think there's just such a common like it's one of the tough things with the new age social media media and everything is like the perception of people seems so great um like all the instagram photos and the videos like everyone just sees the positives because 
why would you like you'd want to you want to brand yourself and post like good things you want good content mm-hmm. um but i think everyone's got stuff going on and and dealing with things so i would say this year has just been it's been an amazing year like so many great opportunities and so many cool blessings but it was a tough year for sure too like just mentally um um like back like the way the season ended in 2020 and just kind of the uncertainty of the world really in the summer and then like being married and like having feeling that responsibility as a husband now um and then switching gears and playing volleyball as a job not just a it was technically a, a job at school, but like actually playing for money and having a little bit more pressure with that and wanting to do well in that and being in a good league. I think there was just a lot of different like new stressors um, in life. So there's for sure some times where I would come back after practice and I would just be like, just so frustrated or like feel terrible. Like I know what I need to do to be a better player, but I'm not doing it. And, I found myself kind of molding everything together and um, I'd be at home, I'd be at home and I would be thinking like, oh man, I got to be better, do this better volleyball. But then I'd be at volleyball and I'd be like, oh man, I just want to be at home and, and like being a good husband and hanging out with Sam. So just figuring out how to separate the two, I think was big and kind of have like, okay, volleyball, it's volleyball. I'm going to, sure do what I need to do at home, like stretch a bit and watch some video. But if I'm not doing that, I'm like not thinking about it. And then, but when I'm there, I'm going to be like fully dialed in. I'm going to like get my stretches in, get my warm up in and journal there and stuff. So I would say just for me, that was a tough part of the year was just, yeah, learning how to separate the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, yeah. That was my one of my biggest lessons, I think, in the beginning of this season, at least. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you think that you created that boundary? Because because so often I think that people become so infatuated with a particular part of their life that that becomes like the entire pillar of their life, rather than having like a pillar of family and a pillar of work and athletics and. Um, whatever presence you want but you're you're basically building this house and you have these foundations and so i i do think that a lot of people tend to over overbuild one pillar and then once that pillar crashes then the rest of their house crashes but how did you find a way to start to break those up and say okay this is volleyball this i'm like i'm not going to be a fanatic all the time about volleyball and mm-hmm. like when i go home i'm going to be with sam and i'm going to be like Eric, not volleyball Eric. I'm going to be yeah. family Eric rather than always mm-hmm. being in that mode. What, what were some tools that you used to find that space? Yeah, I think there's, wow, there's just a lot of truth to what you said there with the foundations um, and like identity and stuff. And I think it was just kind of coming to grasp, to grasp that I'm not like, like this is a big change for me. Like I'm not going to be, the best at volleyball like I'm, I'm not gonna I can't pull my worth from how I'm doing on the court like I can pour what I have into it but I can't like pull my my happiness from that um and back to what we talked about earlier with kind of just like stepping away from everything and like working on more of my spiritual foundation too like 
having like my spiritual foundation as a pillar, I think really helped my like career pillar and my family pillar um, just kind of grow and not almost like keep those down and not let those take over one another um, and really keep everything in balance. Um, I think, yeah, just like, and then like communicating that with Sam too, because like we're now living together overseas. It's just us over here. Um, it's a lot of time together. So I think that was like figuring out like, okay, like when I get up, like I need like an hour to do my own thing and then we'll like have breakfast and play crib or something. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, cool. Because, because it was kind of working out to be like, we hang out together all the time and then I'd be at practice and she would get kind of some alone time. But then I'd come back and then we'd hang out and I was like really not getting any time just for my own thoughts and like kind of stepping away from everything. So just like communicating through that was, I think, really big. And like you said, like making sure that like other areas of my life are being planted versus just focusing it all on one because if if you focus it all on one, then it all just kind of can come crashing down. So mm-hmm. yeah, those are some strategies we use. Yeah. How do you, like for, for me, I'm someone that's super agreeable. So I constantly have to push myself to say no to things and to have difficult conversations. Like I'm a total people pleaser. Um, oh, same. How do you, yeah. How do, how, so I'm interested in how you start that conversation because that's such a tough conversation to have, even though I, I think that it, maybe it shouldn't be, but it's, it is a tough conversation to say, Hey, I'm, I don't feel like I have enough time to myself. Right. Like I think that for, for me, when I, when I, when I've had to draw that line with people, it makes me feel as if I'm like pushing them away and down rather than like, Hey, I'm, I need to build myself as well. And I can't mm-hmm. be with you all the time. I need to, like, I need time for me. And I find that's a difficult conversation to initiate. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge people pleaser. Um, and it's so tough too, because I, like, I want to be like, I want to be a good man. Like I want to be like there and like always supportive and all this stuff. But I think it came down to like, like, okay, like if I want to be my best, I need to do this. Um, and something that I've just, I think I learned from a young age um, was just, it's always better to talk about it like right away versus like putting it under the rug because then it's just going to build up and then maybe cause something bigger than needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the saying that like put the flame out when it's small, like don't let it turn into a forest fire. Right. So, so yeah, just like having that conversation, maybe when it's a little bit hard is better than having it when it's like, okay, I'm just exhausted or like super frustrated or because I'm so exhausted, I'm going to like maybe be more angry than I, I should be or mm-hmm. kind of lose my cool. So yeah, just really being conscious of yourself, knowing that it's better to talk about things kind of first and upfront them, even though it may be really hard, it's going to benefit you in the long run. And then if I think about it like that, I'm like, okay, I don't want to have that thing happen <laughs> like i'm gonna just do it now like gotta man up basically so mm-hmm. that's kind of my strategy with it yeah there's this uh there's this really cool i would say he's a philosopher kind of but also a psychoanalyst that was what he mainly was but i think that it 
he ties lots of things with spirituality and religion and um, psychology. And he has this idea of the shadow where if, if there are these things that we kind of put to the side mm-hmm. and there are things that we don't acknowledge about ourselves and the environment around us. And if we don't acknowledge those things, then they just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh, and, yeah. and Stephen Hawking talks about it in the, in his book, a brief history of time where he says, if you, if you, like it, it takes lots of effort to maintain a home or a room mm-hmm. and to make something look good. Like you have to paint a room, but if you step away from the room and you leave it for a year, then the whole house is going to slowly become consumed by all of these things that you're going to have to fix later. And it's going to take way more time than if you just maintain it. And, and that's the, the, this concept of entropy is that everything is in a state of, of chaos. It's, it's moving towards chaos. Things don't move towards order without effort. Oh man, I think that's so true. That's, I, yeah, I think that just honestly applies to everything. Um, mm-hmm. Even if something as simple as like doing the dishes, like yeah. if you don't do them, they'll just keep piling up and then you won't want to do them even more. And then eventually you're not going to have a clean plate to eat on. And yeah. then it's going to be like an hour of work just to eat. Mm-hmm. Something like that. But yeah, that's a really cool, cool, cool thought. I like that. Yeah, I think I think you'd like Jung. You seem like a guy that would be into that. Yeah, you should you should send me his book after. Yeah, um, I want to I want to ask ask about nationals. I've seen a lot of things about I think especially with volleyball in North America or sports in general in Canada in particular. I think the NCAA is going. They're trying to mm-hmm. go, um, but people are away from sport and how you and your team coped with being a favorite going into nationals, sweeping the U of A in the, in the Canada West final. And then you guys, did you guys get to Manitoba? Like you guys were in Manitoba, mm-hmm. you're ready for your kind of hometown national debut. And then everything stops the world. Everything throws, it gets thrown into disarray. There's no nationals for the first time in what, like 60 years, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Oh man. That's a tough weekend for sure. Um, so we won, we won Can West on Saturday and I, we left for nationals on a Tuesday. Um, and like we won Can West and it was great. Um, but we were already just so dialed. Like the guys who had won nationals the year before just, and lost the nationals the year before that mm-hmm. we're just like so conscious that like this means nothing like it doesn't matter like when, when i was in my second year and we won can west we're like yeah we won can west and then we went to nationals and got pumped in the final mm-hmm. and we're like oh, no one no one cares that we won can west you know like nationals is the one that matters so and then in my third year when we lost can west we were like oh man, that sucks. But like, we, like we were so dialed going into Laval. Um, and then we beat Brandon and that was like unreal. We hadn't beat him all year mm-hmm. and we beat him at nationals. And then no one remembers, like we were the national champions that year. Yeah. So I think we had that same kind of core guys still for that, my fourth year. And we were like, okay, we won. That's great. But like nationals is the target. And we were done dialed in and focused for that so um we got there on a tuesday we trained wednesday 
and Thursday and each day it kind of like we heard a little bit more news about COVID mm -hmm. um, and Wednesday it was like oh man like this COVID thing's like like there's maybe like a 10% chance that we might not have fans or something like oh that's ridiculous but whatever mm -hmm. like then Thursday we're at morning surpass and we find out there's going to be no fans allowed only 50 people in the gym um and we're like what like i was like man like that's gonna that's the best part about these tournaments and like manitoba like historically has sweet fans for these types of events like they have a pretty big volleyball community like can west there and my first year was amazing and like i i knew like so many people from steinbeck would be out supporting me and it was, that, would, that would like make it special we were playing the home team in the quarter so it was going to be it was going to be wild like it was going to be awesome um so that was a big dagger but like like okay like we're still here to win nationals um like control what you can control like like we're going to do this thing still and then it was thursday night before we were supposed to play friday thursday night it was pretty late it was like around 10 i think a couple of we were grabbing like a bite to eat maybe at the hotel restaurant and Ben and I called a meeting and I'm like, Oh, that's weird. Like we, why are we having a meeting now? Like something must've happened. Um, like not thinking anything serious, but maybe he wants to talk about something like we had our full staff there. Um, so there was about 30 of us. I want to say 25 to 30 of us in this room. And he just kind of walked in and like, so the front and just said like they've pulled the plug they've canceled the whole thing um this is gonna be like our last moment probably all together so it was just kind of like some guys thought he was kidding at first most of us were just like what like he's like and it just turned into it was honestly a really special night um we probably spent i want to say like an hour in there guys it kind of turned into to like a seniors night times two mm -hmm. i want to say but like just with so much more heartache um guys were talking about like me and kern and pierce and jordy a lot of tears a lot of hugs um and i think just the saddest part was is we never got like we like we were a really great team and we never got to like we were just ready to like showcase everything we worked for all season over the next three days. So that sucked. And then that we didn't get to celebrate together one last time. Um, like if we would have known that the Can West final was our last game together, then we would have like celebrated. Like that would have been just amazing. But yeah, that's just the, the toughest part is we never got to celebrate together for uh, one last time. And yeah, it was a real emotional night. Um, a lot of tears, a lot of great stories. Um, it was it was cool to see like even the the young guys on the team were just so heartbroken for us old guys because they had, like we had grown like so close to them over the year, um, and they just wanted like us to play so bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, man, it was tough. That was a tough night. do you want to do you want to end it there that seems like a pretty um 
I'll, yeah, I'll just say that like Ben, Ben was like such a great leader about it. He, um, he was just said like, there's guys, there's like literally nothing you can do. And you guys should be so proud of like what you've accomplished this season and who you guys are as men. And um, yeah, that we shouldn't, that it's like not, like there's nothing we can do and we shouldn't dwell on it. Um, and they said he was so proud of us and he would just wanted us to have another chance to play together. So yeah, Ben was great about it. And it was great to be together in that last moment, but it's crazy to think about even now, like I, we haven't all been together in a room like since that night, because we all kind of went our separate ways. Like I stayed in Winnipeg for the weekend still. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll it there. Okay, now I want to dig into other stuff. I, I, are you still good? Do you have time? Oh, yeah, man. I got lots of time. Oh, killer. I'm, I'm having a great time. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Um, I want to know what you think about control. Obviously, you, you alluded to it a few times. You have alluded to it a few times in, in general and um, the things you can control when the fans get canceled and then the things you can control when volleyball itself gets canceled. And, and I, I want to know what the philosophy on the team was and what your philosophy is towards control. Yeah. So the year before in Laval, that was a huge theme for us. Um, um, it was actually brought up by our, he coaches uh, on the Island, Abe, Abe Vendor. I don't know if you know him, nope. but he, he comes to our nationals every year. Um, he's a Cairo guy. So he comes to our nationals for the weekend. He's hilarious, but he was big on um, like controlling what you can control. Like, and we talk about this all the time, like, okay, what can you, you can control what you can control, like your body language, you can control like the words you say, like how, how good of a teammate you are. Um, you can control all the work you put in and the preparation you do. Um, but you can't control the fans. You can't control the bad call by the ref. You can't, control what the other team says um and yeah and that was just a huge kind of i think philosophy for us that would just keep us grounded um and connected like even if guys were playing bad they had the choice to be a good teammate and the guys who were playing good had a choice to build up the guys who maybe were struggling so um all about like choices and just knowing what you can choose and how your decisions will affect others. Um, I think, especially I remember in my third year, um, that was just a huge theme. Um, and I think it just like makes everything like put in a perspective because I think there's so many athletes that go out and get so frustrated at what the ref does or like at some emotional thing that really makes them play worse in the end and i think that's the biggest part about it is control you can control because you don't want to get sucked in by all the other bs essentially like that's Mm -hmm. that's what it is in my opinion i remember in your third year uh in the semis versus tru um in the it was it was the game like it was the last game and it was it was super frustrating for me. I was on the bench, but watching you guys play as a team, I think, like, I think it was one of the only games of the year that you, you hit negative or close to it. Um, 
I don't think Jesse was having a good game. Um, Aaron was going off and Jackson was going off and, or no, it would have been, it would have been Aaron and no Pierce was, was hurt. So it was, it was Aaron and Jackson. Um, mm-hmm. And then Kern was having an okay game. And I remember being frustrated because our team would come in and everyone would be kind of down because we'd be down. And, and it was, it was this weird feeling of like, we're, we're not we're not losing to like superstars right now like Lepke and Elser are not doing great but it was it was frustrating to see our body language compared to yours because you guys were always so engaged with each other and Mm -hmm. super upright and supportive and it didn't look like you were having a bad game or Jesse was having a bad game or Kern was having an okay game it's like we're we're losing to to two really good middles right now and it looks like we're like being smacked around by the entire team Hmm. that's super cool um yeah i think that's another kind of mantra that um always kind of rings in my ears is uh play the day so it's just a it's a golfing analogy um i don't know if you golf but sometimes you'll go on the course and like you'll be slicing and you kind of got to play that shot you got to maybe like play your slice and other days you'll be hitting a draw so just really if I'm like maybe struggling a little bit offensively and I got to still choose like, okay, I'm struggling offensively, but I can still really dial it in on reception. I can still like cheer on my guys and like Mm -hmm. put in good energy and I can still like talk and like talk about strategy and stuff. Like I'm, I'm so that even if I'm struggling a little bit with spike and then I can think of like, okay, if I'm struggling, maybe I'll, a little more like wipe dunk game um just get some recycles so we can run the middle or something so i think those those two go hand in hand like okay that's not going well for me i can choose i can control if i get i can choose to get frustrated with this or i can choose to just like let it be and focus on other things that are going to help the team um because i think all of us we're not out there to I'm not out there to be good, just me. Like I'm out there to win as a team. And if I have to have a bad game hitting percentage wise, like it doesn't matter to me. I'd rather win as a team. Um, yeah, that's what I, I think I got to say to that. I, I remember that game now. Um, I was frustrated with myself after, but mm-hmm. uh, during the game, I was like really just trying to just like pour in to the other guys. Yeah, well, I remember you had, like you had Dobbert, who's, arguably one of the best players to come out of like NCAA. I think, I think he was probably better than patch while he was at BYU and the guy's just a freak, like super smart, huge, massive dude. And then I think Jesse had Napolitano, who's one of the best opposite side blockers I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But you guys just know you played your role and, um, there's uh there's this there's this book called Zen Mind Beginner's Mind by this guy Shinru Suzuki and he talks about control in like the only way to control someone is by encouraging them to be themselves and allowing them to be he calls it mischievous like you want people to kind of have the freedom to to do what they do and he talks about so the way to control a, a herd of cattle is mm-hmm. not to put it into corrals. You don't want to put them into tiny little pens where you have complete control over everything you do or else they'll rebel. What you want to do mm-hmm. with the cow 
and a herd of cattle is to put them into a big open field and put a fence around that big open field because then then they have this you're controlling the place that they can move around in but you're giving them this kind of illusionary control where you're mm. you're encouraging them to move around and be themselves but they're in this larger framework oh man i love that you got a lot of books you need to send me yeah man i'll put together a list yeah uh, that's that's a really cool really cool thing i think that's so true i think that almost goes back to what we were talking about earlier with like that's the same principle as being free like Mm -hmm. like with an athlete if you just put them in like no you can only do this and this and this and you can't do this then it's just gonna it's not gonna let them grow and be free it goes along with it totally yeah i think that's really tough as an athlete and i think it's a lot of pressure as a coach to allow for freedom because you have to watch so much failure right like um my my good friend ken mclaughlin he does the whole pursuit volley thing and one of their principles they have three principles and one of their principles is finding a different way to approach failure and fear and how you shouldn't have this fear of failure because like like you need to fail to become better it's you Mm -hmm. see it time and time again in lots of autobiographies and any any personal anecdotal stuff there's always this failure before you achieve something like nobody walks into a gym and is immediately an all-star like right. there's there's a process to get there and there's lots of like I, I talked a little bit about it earlier with the uh acetylcholine and norepinephrine how you you need to fail and that's how you like you're by failing you're approximating the things that work so yeah. if you fail you realize that didn't work and um i don't know a good example is like with a um like when you're playing with a kid, like a young kid, and mm-hmm. you're kind of playing tag or you're, they're, they're trying to slap you around or something and you're constantly moving your hands away and then occasionally you let them hit you. And then, and then they get a little bit better and then you get a little bit faster. Yeah. And then they're constantly chasing. It's this game of cat and mouse where you're pulling them and all, they're also pushing themselves to, to achieve that goal. And then... It's actually cool because there's this other neurochemical dopamine, which is a, it's a um, reward based on external motivation. So right. it's things outside of ourselves. Serotonin is something that's like you talked a little bit about posturing and serotonin mm-hmm. controls posture. And that's the feeling that we're okay where we're at right now. So, mm-hmm. so if you're at the, like a, a chimpanzee at the top of the dominance hierarchy has the highest serotonin, it's chest is always mm-hmm. out. It's, it's stoked, whereas something at the bottom, it doesn't want to be there. It's really curled in. But so mm-hmm. dopamine is this, this neurotransmitter that enables us to understand that we want something outside of ourselves, and it rewards us for reaching for that thing outside of ourselves. And right. so that's the feeling that when, when the kid actually strikes your hand, then they get a release of dopamine. They're like, whoa, that was really sweet. Mm-hmm. And then that encourages them to keep going. So it's this positive feedback loop but you have to fail to get that dopamine release. And then once you succeed dopamine release, and then you're more okay with failure because you know that that's part of the process, at least from a neurochemical perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. I've heard of, uh, man, I was playing with that a little bit this year, actually with, uh, forgetting the podcast. So Joe Rogan, he's like a neuroscientist at Stanford, I think. Andrew Huberman. Uh, yeah yeah his his work's great man and like mm-hmm. that's all like 
reminding me exactly what you're saying about like positive positive feedback loops and like uh you can actually like create dopamine for yourself by like having external rewards um mm-hmm. or internal rewards i think it was um and like really high-end athletes are just so good at doing that to like push keep pushing the boundaries and keep getting better because they're they know how to create dopamine like for themselves almost and i think that is fascinating it's something i've been trying to like play with like how can i okay i'm exhausted like but i need to like get this lift in how do i like get a little like reward internally for me to like push through to this next thing you know Mm -hmm. i love that stuff that's fascinating yeah it's super cool i think that like for, for me, I've found that having, well, not necessarily just for me, but from, from what I've read and from what I've experienced, it's, it's really important to have long-term goal and then incremental goal that allows you to achieve that long-term goal. So each incremental goal should be a step in achieving that long-term goal. And then one step further that the young guy I was talking about earlier, he has this super cool concept of push-pull in personality development. So he has this this design in this book ion um, and it's like two pyramids stacked on top of each other and one of them is the self and so that would be the like the archetypal christ figure or you could say buddha or anyone that's really at the top of like i want to be that person that person is morally sound they they tell the truth they always do the right thing so that's the top and that's kind of what we can see ourselves being one day in an ideal world if we push ourselves to become that that ideal version of ourselves that's that's what he called the self okay and then at the and then that's that's its own pyramid and then on the flip side there's a there's kind of a a shadow version where if you don't do the things that you want to do to achieve that um like that perfect version of yourself then then what are the things that's going to happen to you so you can either ascend or descend by what you choose to do on a daily basis and an annual basis, monthly basis, whatever you want. If you, and, and even, it even comes to that idea of entropy where like, if you just sit down and do nothing, what happens? Like it's, there's no stagnancy. You, you devolve. But if you do the things that you, like, you know that you're being a rascal. If you keep doing those things, how do you devolve into this, this kind of shadow form of the self? Oh man, that's so cool. I love that. Fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. yeah I, back to like the little increments with the goals thing too mm-hmm. there's like this Huberman talks about like why the navy seals are like the navy seals and right. talking to some of the guys is like they're not like because you know they have to go through like a crazy training camp yeah like, like it's, it's nuts um and those the guys who make it through like literally go through like okay just get through like this like next second like they mm-hmm. literally go like second by second in their brain um and like they just keep going like they bro- they've broken everything down so small and on the volleyball court i've really been trying to do that like okay like just focus on this pass i'm not thinking about my approach i'm not thinking about my spike nothing like just if i can keep putting all my hyper focus on this one action then I can push myself to the end versus like, oh man, I got to get through this whole game and do all these things. And like, I'm going to be thinking about all those things versus just like narrowing that down, like as small as you can. And then you get 
put all your energy and focus on that is going to be way better than if you try to think about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that totally links to what like your long-term, short-term goals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For you, I wonder if that translates into this because whenever we'd game plan against you guys, it was always, it was always toughest for you because like we'd, I'd watch Kern and Kern's going to like, you have to, you have to clamp him down the line and push back in or with Pierce, he's going to see five, hit five, turn back. Um, everyone kind of has their thing, but it was always tough for you because you never did the same thing twice. Hmm. Like you would, you would smash a ball cross and then you would go over the top in a roll shot and you just had such a, a large repertoire and it didn't seem like there was, it didn't seem as though you were thinking before the play, I'm going to go up and smash line or I'm going to go up and swing high cross. It was, it was always an in the moment. Everything was situational about it. Right. Yeah. I think that's for, yeah, I feel that when I'm like that to me, it's flow state is when you're not thinking mm-hmm. and you're just doing, um, and I was just reading the other day about Bill Russell, like being in, yeah. um, and like he, he would talk about when he was in flow state, how everything was just so slow. Like he knew what was going to happen. He knew, he knew like the, what plays are going to happen. He felt like, even though like he was like sweating blood, basically, like he was like so alive and so awake and so present. Um, and the interesting thing is he talks about like those moments happen like 10 to 15 times in my career, he said. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, it didn't matter if we won or lost. Like I was just like on like a high. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's like crazy flow state. I think there's a different flow state that you can get into. of just like reacting in the moment, but that's super interesting. You say that because I also remember like Gino, my, my junior team coach, he always talked about, he was like, I never hit the same shot twice in a row. And that always like rung in my ears. Like, I always tried to be like unpredictable mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, it was always, always fun and super annoying, fun to watch, <laughs> annoying to play against. What was your, what's been your experience with the national team? Like being a, a younger guy, I, assume you were at least close to the list for this Olympic run, but being a younger guy, stepping into the role of like being part of the up and coming class in the national team program. How does, how's that been? How, what's your experience with that? How did that feel when you first started getting into it? Like as you were younger, did you ever expect that was a thing? Um, yeah, it's been a great experience. Um, it's, I think I'm super fortunate to be able to have played some international ball while also playing in U sports. Mm-hmm. Um, because it gave like, it didn't just help me. Like, I think it helped like our team because it was kind of like a, more of a connection to the international game and the college game. So I remember my first time, it was after my second year, I got named to the long list on the DNL roster. This was with Antigua this first uh, second summer. And I went out there early and a bunch of the guys weren't back yet. And they needed, I was like playing with all the A team guys that were there. 
and I was just blown away with uh, just the, the the demand for perfection and like the um, just like the next like the next level, right? Like you come out of high school and club, and it's kind of like okay, like these are the standards now. But then you adapt and you get used to it, and then maybe you get maybe too good for it, and it could like bring you down a little bit. But then getting thrown in this, it was like a whole new just like brain stigma. Like I was just like, like talk, talk about like push pull. Like I was like, I was failing a lot, but I was learning. I felt like I learned more um, in those scenarios. So I ended up like, I felt like I learned a bunch. I, I learned a bunch in those like month of training, but I didn't get it to go anywhere for DNL. And then I ended up training with the D team for most of the summer. And it was still good quality training, like in the weight room and everything. But then at the end of the summer, there was a couple injuries and I got pulled up with the A team again. And I just felt like kind of all the like maybe work I had put in that summer just like came out in that, in those like months that I was with the team. Mm-hmm. And I was like, just like cognitively, like so much more aware, learning new stuff, just a higher standard. Um, and then going back to school for my third year. I remember like going to the gym and like trying these new shots, like trying like this lefty dunk, trying like jump back, like jump back spike line, um, different like wipes and and things, different things on like a hybrid float serve that I'd learned. And then talking to my teammates about it, talking to Ben Jill about it. So I think it was like being able to play, getting the opportunity, like, and I think I was a little bit lucky with some of those injuries but getting the opportunity to play with the, the A-team quality guys just like showed me, it gave me a clear view of what I wanted. And it also like improved myself and like almost like new capabilities like emerged from that, if that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you like find more about like your game and more about like your style and more about um, things you want to try. And then it opens up your brain for even more growth, I think. Mm-hmm. so to sum up your question i yeah i'm super thankful i got the opportunity to do that and then i think it for sure played a huge role in a lot of like a bunch of my maybe university success just like getting that exposure and being able to try new things and um feel comfortable and confident doing that mm-hmm. what's been the what's been the biggest kind of advocate for you throughout your in in general life success you've you've talked a few times about lessons that you've learned early about conflict resolution and like does that come from a family place does that come from a a spirituality place where do where do a lot of your life lessons come from what's the what's your foundational build great question um i think a lot of my foundational build for sure comes with uh with my spiritual foundation but also a lot of things so my parents went through a pretty messy split when i was at the end of eighth grade and it lasted all through to high school and it was actually one of the reasons why i wanted to leave manitoba mm-hmm. and trinity so it was it was it was really messy i'm not gonna lie and me being the oldest i found myself being the mediator a lot and being the mediator, probably one of the only people who like 
talk to my mom and talk to my dad. And, and I kind of emerged as a conflict like solver, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And really it one, yeah, I, I became a mediator and two, it like really emerged my, I don't want conflict, but I know what conflict can cause. Right. So when I talk about earlier, like knowing that I should talk about something when it's a little bit hard, I think that emerges from maybe my experience with my parents being like, okay, I don't like conflict, but I don't want like really bad conflict because I dealt with that a lot and it sucks. So I'm going to try to do what I can to not get that kind of conflict. I'll settle for a little bit of like maybe hard discussion. um, If that makes sense. But the older I get, the more I think the lessons of that whole divorce really show up in my life um, and really motivate me a lot with like the kind of man and husband I want to be um, and what I don't want to be. And yeah, I think, yeah, like experiences when you're a kid, I think they really do echo like throughout your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's a huge thing. And then like joint with my, with my spiritual beliefs, I think that like combination almost creates a lot of what I value and what I am trying to work towards. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading a bunch of Joseph Campbell lately and he's a kind of generalist really big into mythology and religion and the role that it plays in culture. And I think what I've realized from him is that like these, these books, the like any religion, mythology, things that people believe in that kind of create this culture for us. They're, they're really at their, if, if I were to boil it down to their, to the simplest form, I'd say that they're, like a, it's it's a self therapy book, and I think mm. that that's something that we've we've kind of lost over mm. the past few years. Over the, I'd call it like the modernization of spirituality. Maybe like people are moving away from from books and mm. storytelling, whereas four thousand years ago, two thousand years ago in in Egypt, if there's a problem, like you're having an interpersonal problem with someone, then you talk mm. about Osiris, and and if you're like a Viking, then you talk about Thor and Odin and the problems that they face and how they deal with these issues. And, and it, it stops things from, from being so kind of rigid and like, oh, you have to go talk to someone. And you're not hearing that from your parents in those situations. You're hearing them from like, like literal gods, like right. things that are much bigger than us. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. I would say the most, um, for me, the most salient example is the David and Goliath story and how that's that's the story of being an underdog and being too small for a situation but succeeding by putting yourself out there and taking the leap to actually strive for that thing and right. and I, I feel like we've we've kind of lost that over time and i actually think like, this is something that I'd, I'd love to talk to benjo about is how yeah. storytelling creates culture and team and in in your guys situation i would say one of the the best teams to emerge from north america in the past 10 years are the, one of the best programs at the very least. And so like, I'm really interested in, in that aspect of religiosity and spirituality and mythology is how 
how we can use these stories to educate ourselves because so many people have these epiphanies when they read stories and go like, whoa, that's, that, that mirrors my life. That's this, this archetypal story that tells my story just in different terms with these figures that are a lot bigger than myself and that I'm able to, to tailor my experience to that. Yeah. Wow. That's, I think that's amazing, man. Like storytelling to me is such a, it's such a great way to understand things, right? Like even Jesus taught in parables, like all the time, like that was mm-hmm. the way he taught things for people to understand. Right. Um, and, and even like, I'm listening to this podcast about like kind of the foundations of like, like human morality and like the Bible and stuff. And it's really interesting. Um, it's actually a Jordan Peterson lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting just to hear like his thoughts on it, but just about like how people, maybe the Bible specifically like take, take some of the stories too literally. Mm-hmm. And then they just like throw the whole thing out the window when there's like, so much they could learn like just from these stories and apply to their lives um and then what you talked about with like the like people not like going to the gods or um that's so true like in the last whatever couple centuries that's really like only been a thing you know like Mm -hmm. for the rest of human history like people always went to like the hierarchy of spirituality for everything um and they fear the spirituality of everything mm-hmm. um, and i think in fearing like you talk about like being a god-fearing person in fearing like that like to me if i fear god then i'm not fear- fearing life stuff but if i don't have that then life things start to freak me out right. um, and like the, the anxieties and the pressures of things are all on me instead of on something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a topic that you could dive into super deep, but you should for sure reach out to Benjo and get him to talk about that because he's so great with, like, I can think of so many stories that he's, he's used to inspire me as an athlete, like, and then he turns them, he turns the stories into mantras. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of them I can think of, is uh he talked about Muhammad Ali and he was I forget who he was boxing, maybe it was Joe Frazier, but it's probably wrong. But he like he kept calling him like Cassius Clay, like in all the interviews and stuff. And Muhammad Ali was like switching his name. So then like he's like in the ring with him and he's like knocking him out. And he's like every time he pops him with one, he's saying, like, what's my name? What's my name? Like and he just like keeps going, like like another one, what's my name? Until he like knocks him out. And, and then Benjo makes that into a mantra. Like, what's my name? Like he'd say that before a game or something. Like, just keep going, like keep, keep popping him. Like, what's mm-hmm. my name? Like, who are we? You know? Um, and I'll always remember that. Um, I could go on with so many examples, but you should really get him on here, man. I think, I think what you're doing is great. And I love the questions you ask. And um, yeah, you'd be a great guy to have on here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that'd be a, I think that'd be a ton of fun. I'd, I'd really like to dig into a lot of things that he, number one, I've heard about him, and number two, that I'm just curious about his, his presence. And I, I think that the great coaches that I've met that aren't just 
not not strictly in the sense of volleyball coach like win loss column but the coaches that have developed people to the highest extent mm-hmm. i think are great storytellers like lots yeah. of lots of coaches that i've met are actually almost every coach that i've had through my volleyball career i've been super fortunate to have really good coaches and my favorite coaches are storytellers oh, because absolutely because they just make things so relatable and it's not just numbers and angles and platform, but it's like this, this underlying consciousness to, to our culture and to humanity. Like they, they bring these things out of the depths of our minds that, that show us the things that we're capable of and the things that are possible in the world, rather than just saying ball nose angle, hit the ball at your highest contact point. It's, it's these stories that motivate us and that allow us to grow. Oh yeah. Man, that is so true. Yeah, I have so many stories that are just like coming to my head now. Yeah, that's amazing. You got to get them on here. I think it'd be great. And yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, man. I think I'm, I think I'm out of questions. We've, we've got to do this again, though. That was a ton of fun. Yeah. I got I to gotta awesome. go back to the drawing board. Yeah, that was amazing, man. This was, uh, this was great. Just letting in uh, conversation roll. That's, that's what you want. Yeah, that's, my, that's the way I try to do it. Oh, man, I love this. I love what you're doing. And uh, you got to send me some books. I'll send you some too. Yeah, I'll put together a list. All right, man. This is sweet. Yeah, killer. Thanks a lot, my dude. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks a ton. It was, no time, this is probably one of my favorite ones I've done so far. This was a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. I love it. Can't wait to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have it out hopefully later today and I'll post some highlights and all the clips on YouTube and yeah, I'll send it out. This is great. Alrighty. Okay, thanks a lot, dude. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you a message. Actually, here, I'll, I'll put this on pod so we pause so we can have an actual talk. Okay, cool.